Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, this week's guest is maybe the most decorated guest we've ever had on here. He is seven-time Grammy-winning producer Steve Thompson. So let me fill you in. Steve, has his career goes back like 40 years, and he's touched almost every genre you can think of. In fact, let me read what these seven Grammys came for. Corn Freak on a Leash, Blues Traveler Runaround, Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody, Cutting Crew, Been in Love Before, Aretha Franklin and George Michael, uh, Knew You Were Waiting, Paul Simon, Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes, and Boy in the Bubble, and Ziggy Marley, People Get Ready. Okay? I mean, that is so diverse. So let me explain how this happened. A few months ago, I heard Steve on the Double Stop podcast. I've mentioned that one before. The Double Stop, if you listen to it, you know, is kind of more focused on hard rock and heavy metal. And he went, so two of Steve's probably most noteworthy jobs were working on Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction and Metallica's and Justice for All album. And he gets asked to talk about those constantly. And so Brian Sword on the Double Stop, they covered really the hard rock and heavy metal side of his career. But I knew there was Tears for Fears, Bowie, Talk Talk, who you're listening to right here, um, Simple Minds, Icicle Works, Psychedelic Furs, all this other stuff that I loved that wasn't being talked about. And so I thought, well, let's see if Steve would come on and talk to me about that half of his career. And luckily he did. So it's uh, there's more music in this episode than any episode we've ever had. Maybe it's too overstuffed. I don't know. I can't decide because I just... I just wanted to throw out names and hear his stories, and he had tons of them. It was so great. I will say it's a little confusing sometimes, and he ex- he explained some of this, but in some cases, he was the producer, like, of the song that you would hear on the album if you bought it. In other cases, he was the mixer, and in other cases, he was the remixer. And so, there's sometimes I, it was kind of exhausting, honestly, making sure that I had the right version of this song that we talked about to play here on this episode. And so in some cases, you know, I throw out a name and he didn't actually work directly with them. He remixed their tracks afterwards. But you can see that he's an amazing, he has amazing ears. He's an amazing talent. He's touched everyone. He's also quite a character. I don't know if he liked me or not. I think he liked me. I hope he did. Um, When we did this, we were on Skype, and I could see him, but he couldn't see me. And he would smile from time to time. I hope that it warmed, you know, his heart a little bit, that someone took such of an interest in this side of his career. But uh, I don't know. I don't know. He can be a prickly guy, but I, I think he's amazing. So I hope that he's happy with this. And I hope you guys hear some great stories. If you love alternative rock and pop, especially of the 80s, um, you're going to love this conversation. Uh, He called me from his home in New York. So here's the deal. I I heard you on the Double Stop podcast recently. And the Double Brian Assort is great at what he does, but he focuses mostly on like hard rock and heavy metal. And there is a whole other side, the pop and alternative side to your career that means more to me. And I thought, I want to hear those stories. And so that's why I invited you on. I wanted to see if we could delve into that side of your career. I already know, thanks to that one, all the bio of how you got started and, and um, you know, uh, 
how you, how, where you grew up, how you got turned on to music, but I have a, Oh, I love it. You're going to smoke while we do it. I, that's hilarious. Um, <laughs> I do have one. We got to, we got to set some ground rules here. If you could explain to me the difference between producing, remixing and mixing, because you got like 10 pages of credits here and you're doing one or all of those things on all of them. It, it, tell idiots like me what the difference is. Um, okay. The difference between producing, mixing, remixing, uh, producing is where you work with an artist. You go through their song demos. You kind of take them apart, find out the good qualities, the qualities that need improvement on, whether it's lyrics, melody, music, and everything like that, and take it apart. And there's, you know, it's kind of interesting. You know, when you look at a producer, there's there's a lot of different producers. A lot of producers are sometimes just engineers who just engineer the sound. Mm. And a lot of them don't really pay attention to songs, arrangements, and everything like that. I'm kind of the one that does it all because I'm, I'm very cognizant of lyrics. Okay. You know, um, like, you know, I think it's always important lyrically that, first of all, you, when you work on NARS, you kind of want to determine what your base audience is, okay? Mm-hmm. And once you determine that, then you kind of hopefully that your songs will relate with that audience. Like, again, lyrically, when you're writing for a 12-year-old, it's going to be a lot different than when you're writing for a 40-year-old. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I'm very uh, aware of that, you know, because I always use this analogy. You know, the Beatles wrote a song, She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. Huge hit worldwide. But if you wrote a song like that today, lyrically, they would laugh at you. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, you can always write about the same subject matter, but it, it's very important to write lyrically how people can relate and you could take the opposite end of the spectrum and you look at Nicki Minaj or Rihanna and and a lot of times they're kind of like trashy lyrics and for some reason today it seems to be the norm let's see how trashy we can get and I come from the school hey I could get trashy like anybody else but I'd rather uh, put lyrically double and triple entendres into my lyrics like Mm -hmm. you could write something about your own experience but hopefully you can write it where people can relate to that and, and be their own experience. Okay. You yeah. know, mm-hmm. and also if you need to write trashy, uh, you don't have to say, oh, I'm going to fuck her in the ass. <laughs> you can always say, you know, something different that can imply that, you know? Right, right, right. Class. Yeah. 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 You can be classy. Yeah. Well, the whole thing is you want your music to stand up 20 or 30 years from now. And if you write just for today, tomorrow could be gone. Very true. I, you take a look at a producer like Max Martin. Max Martin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's probably one of the most successful writer producers in the pop market for the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've done projects where we work together on stuff, and I have total amount of respect for him. But I'm looking at, and I'm looking at the, the songs he's done. Well, these songs hold up in 20 years. You don't know yeah. that. So that's a producer. When, I'm a, when I put the producer hat on, I'm basically... You know, I'll co-write if I have to. I'll arrange the music, parts, tempo, everything like this. I'll co-engineer whatever engineer I'm working with because I like to be hands-on. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll mix it. Mixing okay. mixing to me is like PlayStation. I love mixing. That's the most funnest part of productions in my book. What do you like about it? Because you got a lot of mixing credits on here. What um, What are you 
does, are you working with dynamic? I'm an idiot. I don't, I'm not a musician. So are you working with dynamics? And oh, how, absolutely. Okay. absolutely. Like, you know, a lot of people mix in the box today, which is okay. If that's what you're into doing, I've done that, but I find myself to be a lot faster when I mix on a console because, you know, it gives me a chance to feel the music mm-hmm. instead of going in the box, unless you use a pro controller in the box and say, okay, let's raise this uh, guitar up uh, a half a dB in verse three in the first four bars. You know, I say, fuck that. I'm going to raise it where I feel it. I close my eyes and feel where it needs to be. Again, that's from the school I went to because like when I did Appetite for Destruction, there was no computers involved. It was all manual. Yeah. And and so you kind of feel it and and feel dynamics. And another thing about uh, a lot of people today is they rely on compression a lot. The problem I have with compression is that it makes everything sound smaller and you lose the dynamics the more compression you use. And I I personally like to work on music that has a lot of dynamics. I mean, I think that's basically my MO in music. I love dynamics. Okay. And there's no way you can computerize that. You just got to feel it. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. Cool. Well, I'm going to throw out a bunch. I mean, you've, your resume is like 20 pages long, and I'm going to throw out a bunch of names. Before and, you do that, do you want to know the difference between mixing and remixing as well? Sure. Or? Yes. I'm sorry. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> yes, please. That's not big. Okay, here we go. <laughs> now, a mixer can be brought in to just mix what's already there musically. Okay, like say uh, Psychedelic Furs brings me in. Mm-hmm. They they want me to mix the round, but not really do any uh, additional production or adding music. Just want me to mix what's there. That's what a mixer does. So you basically take their songs and, and you work with what's already on tape or Pro Tools, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. A remixer, especially in the dance community, is more like production. You know, back in the day when I did a lot of remixing, we basically had to use the original production and add instrumentation to what was already there to make it more dance oriented, you know, which was a lot like the talk talks and the furs and everything like that. So I was able to add instrumentation and then, you you know, with remixing, you can rearrange the song, but today, you know, a lot of remixes will just take vocals, vocal stems and create a whole new track around it. Okay. Track musically. Mm -hmm. And, And that's great. But you know, back in the day, we weren't afforded the right to do that. Now it's it's a lot different. So remixing is more like additional production and mixing. Got it. One thing I've always wondered, when you are remixing an existing hit, like for instance, I was listening to the remix you did of uh, Billy Idol's Don't Need a Gun.
Are you hiring in additional musicians to come in and play on that album? Are you taking existing uh, snippets of recording of music that already exists and you're just sort of playing with it and tweaking it? How how into it, how into the weeds do you get when you're remixing like that? Well, on that particular song, I brought Steve Stevens in. Okay. Because I wanted to do some additional guitars and everything like that. So I brought Steve in to add some different guitars and I'm trying to remember... I don't know if I brought a programmer keyboard player and I probably did that to add some effects and everything like that. Just okay. basically restructure the whole song because I think okay. I think I made that song way too long. <laughs> you did. You did. Yeah, that's what I'm always I, that's what I always wonder about remixes is if it's a producer playing with uh, existing material or if they're creating new material, bringing back in musicians to record new things to add to what's already there. It's both. Both. It's okay. Okay. Good to know. Now, you mentioned Talk Talk. It's My Life is one of my favorite ba- favorite songs of all time. They're one of my favorite bands of all time. Uh, one of the, it, it, Mark Hollis is my wish, my dream guest for this show, and I know he will never do it. Tell me about how Talk Talk happened, and tell me all about Mark Hollis. Uh, Steve Robosky was a for EMI at the time approached me and asked if I would like to work on this song. And I heard the song, I said, absolutely. So I went in the studio, rearranged the song, brought it up, and really happy what I did with it, you know, because again, we're taking an alternative, what they call new wave at the time, and I wanted to make it more crossover. Mm-hmm. So the song went number one, Every the record company was happy, and I met with Mark and the band. I said, Steve, we didn't like that mix. It was too safe. Oh, really? <laughs> Uh, I believe Tim Freezegreen did a remix in the UK at the time, around mm-hmm. 84. And I did what I think they called the New York mix or whatever it was. Okay, okay. But it was, it was kind of funny meeting the band and everything like that. I mean, I loved them and like that. I said, Mark, really? That's how you felt? He goes, yeah. So the next song I got was Such a Shame. I said, I'll fix your ass. <laughs> it's a shame. So I did such a shame, and he absolutely fucking loved it. And I said, okay. But I said, Mark, with all due respect, I really, again, I was a club DJ at the time, too. I knew that It's My Life was a classic song, and I wanted to give it more of a classic approach, not bastardizing the original production, but just enhancing it. Mm-hmm. But with a song like Such a Shame, I was able to really go out of the box and really experiment. So I said, Mark, you know, I treat each song as what it is and what can I do to make it better? And I felt talk. I mean, I felt such a shame was probably almost there, you know? Yeah. yeah. 
So it's like painting a, a mustache on the Mona Lisa. Would you want to do that? So I remember it was kind of interesting. Um, I went to a show that they played with the Furs in, I believe it was Boston. I flew in with uh, Steve Robowski, the A&R guy at the time, a close friend of mine. And we went to the show and it, everything was great. I love Mark. I love the band. We got along great. And, you know, I wound up, I think, working on Dumb Dumb Girl as well. I think with the those were the four songs, and I was really happy what uh, I did with Talk Talk. I mean, obviously, you know, they come from the school. Let's not be let's be hip and cool, and and, and not let's be more underground than yeah. you know, successful. I mean, if anything held true with that band, I would say it would be that band. I mean, I haven't heard back from them since I worked with them. I have no idea what they're even doing. I mean, Mark might be working in a flower shop for all yeah. I know. He retired and has gone completely incognito. And um, their sound, as you, if you followed them in the early '90s, it just got weirder and weirder, but also very beautiful. And I'm just another thing too. And don't take this the wrong way. You seem to have a very big personality. And Mark, to me, seems like someone who might be sort of a delicate flower. Was it was it ever were there ever personality issues, or was he just really happy with what you were doing for him? No, no, there's no personality. Issues. Okay, okay. I've Again, I said, Mark, when I'm hired to do something, you know, this is what I do. And, you know, I, I felt we got along great. Good. And, and again, you know, it's interesting when a record company hires you to work on a song and the band is not there, it's very hard to get in the heads of the band. Because, again, I like to do that. Mm -hmm. I like to get into the head of what they're doing. I mean, a great example was when I when I did Shout Tears for Fears.
Well, this is a really interesting story. Okay. So the company hired me to work on Shout, and I absolutely love the song, love the album, love the band. Mm-hmm. And I wound up working on the song. Everything was great. Red Cummings jumping up and down, everything like that. And right after I finished that song, I happened to be in L.A. doing another project. And at the time, you had Walkmans. And I'm staying at the Sunset Marquee Hotel. This is a true story. And guess who I see? I'm sitting by the pool. And on the other side of the pool, I see Kurt and Roland. And again, I never met them before. Yeah. Sitting at the table. So like me, high energy Steve, I walk over to him. I said, hi, Kurt and Roland. I'm Steve Thompson. What would you think of the mix I did on Shout? And they looked at me and they said, what? Who the hell are you? What are you talking about? <laughs> Is this guy out of his fucking mind? And and then I said, uh-oh, it looks like the company. I said to myself, <laughs> the company didn't tell them. Uh-oh. I, mean, I said, oh, shit, I opened up a can of worms. So I had the Walkman in front of me. I said, okay, I'm sorry you didn't know. I had no idea. Here is the remix I did. Here's the Walkman. I'll just walk away and and probably drown myself in the pool. (laughs) So Roland picks up the headphones first, starts listening to it, listening to it all the way through. Then he listens to it again, and his head starts bopping up and down. Then he gives it to Roland. Roland's listening to it. And again, I'm on the other side of the pool on my lounge chair, probably sweating 50 million bullets. And um, after they listen to it for a while, Roland signals me to come over. And again, I don't know if this is the exact wording, but I think it's close. He goes, I got to be honest with you. I am really fucking pissed off that my company didn't tell me that they took our song and gave it to somebody to work on but I got to be honest with you. This is the best fucking thing I've ever heard. Oh, no, really? I, you want to hear something that just blew me away? They were playing in L.A. They invited me to this show. It was two days later. I get to this show, and they played Shout, the same arrangement I did on, on the mix I did. No way. I, I mean, that was a testament. And, <laughs> that is a great. And I don't know what happened with the company. But I remember Roland hitting me up in the early 90s says, Hey, we'd like to revisit Shout and do a, a, a cool remix on it. I said, cool. So I took the song, and at that time, everything was kind of underground. Sonically, it was more grittier and things like that. And I took that approach, and he absolutely hated it. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> well, I, I, I did something okay. that was cool for the day, but yeah. I can understand his point, you know. So just to clarify, because I think this is something that could get confusing. You did not mix or work on the the version of Shout that is on Songs from the Big Chair. You did an additional remix or something afterwards that came out, probably to dance floors or something like that, right? Absolutely correct. And the thing is, um, uh, they wound up putting a box set up, and it's available on their box set. I have the uh, two-disc like deluxe special edition of that album. They're one of my all-time favorite bands, too. So, okay, it's probably on there. Cool. Okay, good. But then they worked with you again on Seeds of Love, right? What? Did you come in and do something on Seeds of Love, too? I think all I did was, I might have worked on another song. I'm not sure. Okay, I thought you did. Anyway, this is and this begs a question. another question I have for you. When you're remixing or mixing, are you oftentimes not even working face-to-face with the actual artist? Are you in a studio somewhere tinkering with tapes 
Uh, sometimes yes, and sometimes you know, if I if I have the ability to bring the artist in, I will because I want them to be there. Yeah, I want them, I want them to feel part of the process because I think it's a lot easier to get your point across. I mean, when they're not involved, no matter how good it is, they're going to kind of feel a little like weird. Yeah, yeah. And so a, a lot of times, I, I was lucky that that I brought the artists in. Okay, just to show them what I did. Okay. Um, aha. Uh, Sun Always Shines on TV. What did you do with Aha? Did you just work on a remix of that song, or did you produce something else on that album? Well, I worked on additional production. I brought musicians in to enhance what was already there. Okay. And I think I worked on another song. I'm trying Train of Thought, I think it was. Yep. Train of Thought. because I really like the mood of what we created in the studio of that song. And it's just like, to me, it's a very ethereal song that just mm -hmm. felt, it's almost like that. And also like with Ultravox dancing with tears in my eyes. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I really like the mood of it. And even Ice House, uh, No Promises. I, I like the, the, the mood that those songs set and just kind of wanted to enhance it and make it longer and make it work for club DJs. Okay. So again, this is not the version of of um, Sun Always Shines on TV that's on the album. You're doing the remix version that goes out to the DJs. Correct. correct? Okay. Yeah, I think that song is a is a masterpiece, and it's a shame because Take on Me is like the twentieth most interesting song that Aha ever done ever did. But that's the one they get known for, and Sun Always Shines on TV is just a sonic masterpiece. And I wish they were known for more than just their one song. Well, it's kind of interesting. I saw online where he did an acoustic version. I think it was on MTV mm -hmm. recently of Take On Me. And it kind of gave me goosebumps because, I yeah. mean, 
he didn't hit those high notes I was waiting for. But, uh, <laughs> you know, be as it may, I mean, Take On Me obviously was a pop hit. And, and it's a song like I didn't really appreciate then, but I appreciate it now look, looking back at it. Mm-hmm. And that, that happens with me a lot yeah. in my career. That like, you know, in the 70s when I was growing up as a kid, I mean, I was totally Mr. Bowie and mm-hmm. New York Dolls, T-Rex and that whole scene. And, and, and artists like Cat Stevens, like I wouldn't give the time of day or Neil Young. <laughs> and right. then I look back and I look at Cat Stevens. I even have DVDs back in the 70s. I mean, that guy was brilliant. And same, exactly. with, same with like Neil Young. But again, mm-hmm. you know, when you grow up as a kid, you're in your own genre of music and mm-hmm. you kind of bypass those those influences. But I look back and I said, damn, this stuff is good. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about Bowie since you brought him up. Uh, I was, you know... <laughs> I was watching the Dancing in the Street video the other day, Uh-oh. and I'm well. I'm, you know, I love that song. with it a lot of people kind of think it's a sellout move when you you had to have seen that video that went viral a year or so ago where they took out all the actual sound and it's just them (laughs) they took out the song and it's just them kind of lip syncing or whatever does it bother you when a song that you worked really hard on especially by legendary artists like that gets kind of slagged off from time to time or do you care no it doesn't bother me at all i mean you know i mean uh Music is entertainment. It also soothes the soul, and I have no problem, you know, for people doing that. I mean, the story about Dancing Streets was interesting. I was in the studio, and um, I, uh, I'm trying to think of that. No, that wasn't the first time I worked with Bowie, and I did work with Mick Jagger. And I was just about to go on vacation. I got a call. Says, "Hey, we just did this song at Live Aid. They basically recorded in the middle of the night one night. Okay." Mm-hmm. It was put together so quickly. Would you be interested in working on the song? I said, are you kidding me? Of course I would. Sure. So I, I got the tapes in New York, and Bowie and Jagger were probably in London at the time. And I listened to the production. I felt it was lacking, so I wound up bringing in Earl Slick to redo all the guitars on the song. Mm-hmm. And I know he's a guy I worked with a lot. Love him. Absolutely love too. him. And I brought in Jimmy Mellon for percussion just to kind of enhance what was there. And the only thing I'm pissed off is, you know, we didn't get paid, which I have no problem with. Mm-hmm. But I always wanted a platinum record that and I haven't got one to this mm-hmm. day, which kind of pisses me off. You know, I, again, understand the dynamics of the song. Understand how it was recorded. 
It was on the spur of the moment thing. They want to do something for Live Aid. It, I mean, it's not, you know, like a song like Revolution or something like that. Right. It's just meant to be fun. It was kind of interesting because I remember going to a TV show with my wife, Joanne. It was Martha Reeves doing a TV show. And she's the original singer on Dancing in the Streets. Mm-hmm. And I remember she went to the audience. And I had this on, on tape, by the way. So I, I asked her a question. I said, did you ever hear Bowie and Jagger's version of Dancing in the Streets? And she did not. And we talked about that. It was kind really? of a, Yeah. Huh. I, thought, I thought it was kind of cool. I was of the age that the Bowie and Jagger version was the first version I heard. I was like 12 or something, you know? No, it was Martha and the Vandellas. <laughs> oh, I know that now. Back then, I didn't know. Yeah. Um, okay, so but I I think you came on and did some work on Bowie's Tonight album as well, Loving the Alien. Now again, is this a is this a situation where you worked on the remix of "Loving the Alien" or the version that's on the album? Well, it's kind of interesting you say that. Uh, again, for people who don't know me, Bowie is the reason why I got in the music industry. I mean, really, I saw Bowie do the Ziggy Stardust show in the early seventies at Radio City Music Hall, and I have to say that that show changed my life. And again, I've seen every major band you could possibly think of, from Zeppelin to to uh jimmy hendrix i mean to every black sabbath marvin gay i've seen them all and when i saw the bowie show it's just like holy shit i couldn't believe how cool it was so understanding the history i went to go see every show and i was i remember how i got turned on to bowie i was working in a record store called sam goodies in long island mm-hmm. and i remember in the guitar department this guy was closer he says steve i want you to listen to this record he says It'll probably take you about 50 times to get it, but once you get it, you're going to get it. And that was Ziggy Stardust. Uh, And I got it. So to say at this day, I actually work with Bowie, I mean, mm -hmm. it's like more than a dream come true. Unfortunately, I would have preferred to work on songs like Heroes or early stuff, but I was too young. Sure. I got Love in the Alien. I think that might have been the first song I worked with on Bowie. And Bowie wasn't available, so I brought in Carlos Alomar, his arranger and guitar yeah. player, 
He's been on this show. So has Robin. Yeah, Carlos and Robin are for like family to me. I absolutely love them. I have so much respect for what they do. I've used Robin in the studio. I've used Carlos in the studio. I love them. Me too. And I I said, Carlos, can you come in the studio? I want to make sure that you could be Bowie's guy when I do this song. Mm -hmm. And he was gracious enough to come in. We worked very close together. In fact, I think Carlos even came in on the Dancing in the Street session for me. Mm. Just to have him there. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of interesting. Bowie at the time was very um, introverted. Like, I wanted oh. to meet him. I still have not met him. You never I, met Bowie? Well, I did later on. But oh, okay. The, but I never had a chance to sit down with him. And I worked on like about five or six songs. No way. We, we finally met at the Hip Factory. I was working on a project. And just to give you a long story short, Mick Rock, who's his photographer, Mm-hmm. Uh, gave me a collage of Bowie during the pinups days that I still have. Mm-hmm. And as a wedding present, when Mick Brock came to my wedding, he gave me a picture of David holding the sax during pinups, signed it. Oh. So I knew Bowie was going to be in the studio, so I brought the picture in. <clears throat> and so I finally met David, and this is right after Iman. David's personality changed a lot once he met Iman. Iman mm-hmm. was more outgoing, which is great. Mm-hmm. So I'm in the studio with David. I said, David, check out this picture. He looks and goes, oh, I don't remember that. Can I have it? I said, no, you can't have it. <laughs> you know, go get it from Mick. I want you to sign it for me. So he signed it for me. And like I said, I mean, all the people we lost in music, David probably hit me the hardest. Also, I worked with Prince. That hit me hard. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I thought David would last forever, and it, yeah. it just absolutely tore you know it just tore me apart. Yeah. And uh, you know, I have a relationship with Tony Visconti, and you know him and Ken Scott. I mean, so those guys to me were like gods. You know yeah. what they did, and what I really liked about David is, no matter how successful a record he did, he always changed up the formula on the mm-hmm. next record. How many artists can you name have done that? Yeah, I know. And that's I mean, you go from like. You know, Hunky Dory, Man Who Sold the World, Ziggy Stardust, Pinups, Diamond Dogs, to Live at London Tower. And then he got funky with Young Americans and everything like that. Obviously, mm-hmm. Robin and Carlos and Luther Vandross yep. were a big part of that. You know, and Luther, again, was another guy I, I really miss. I love Luther. I mean, mm-hmm. what a great talent he was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. Um, how about Underground? Didn't you do Bowie's Underground, too? Yes, I Labyrinth. Did. Yeah, I did Underground. Um, I did Tonight with him and Tina Turner, which I love the song. Yeah. In fact, I got goosebumps when I saw him and Tina perform that live. Yeah. And uh, I actually worked with Tina on uh, One of the Living, which is on a Mad Max album, which was oh. a really cool, interesting thing. I was in the studio. She was on tour, I believe, in Canada. And her manager was in, so I worked on the song. We sent it right to her, and she was blown away by the version.
to me, it, it, it's so hard to please an artist when they're not there. Mm-hmm. But when you get accolades that they love what you did without being there, that to me is special. That happened with Earth, Wind, and Fire, too, when I worked with yes. them. Yes. Yes, I love them, too. I uh, worked on a song, System of Survival, and yep. I basically re- redid the whole song. Maurice White and, and Philip Bailey were just like blown away, and they were so appreciative. They gave me special thanks on their tour booklet. I mean, I'm really? Cool. Yeah, I mean that was. Cool. Oh. You know, it's interesting. When I grew up as a kid, I saw them live playing with War, and to me, Earth, Wind, and Fire were the quintessential, really cool, energetic live band. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a couple you could say back in the day. Pink Floyd would be one. <coughs> Earth, Wind, and Fire. I love live shows where create energy. And what I say to people today, that's what's missing. And that's why a lot of kids like EDM. You go to an EDM concert or event, it's like light show that make Pink Floyd's light show look like nothing. Mm-hmm. And the energy and the excitement is second to none. I want to see rock bands be able to create that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, probably my favorite new band out there, and they're not that new anymore, is the Struts. I love them. I think the mm-hmm. kid's a star. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good stuff. So um, now, again, Underground, uh, because I especially like that song, did you work on the version that's on the Labyrinth soundtrack or a remix? I did a remix, and I think they might have edited it down and put it on later.
Now, I gotta ask you about another song, Whisper to a Scream by Icicle Works. Oh, yeah, that was You had a hand in that one? Oh, yeah, I worked on it, yeah. That's one of the greatest, that's one of the greatest singles. They, you know, the rest of their stuff doesn't quite measure up to the beauty of that song. That's one of the greatest singles of all time. What did you have to do with that one? I remixed that. It was kind of interesting. That was probably one of the first what they call new wave alternative songs I ever worked on. That was a, it was in the uh, early 80s. It was kind of interesting. Um, I started my career off working on dance music because I was a DJ. It was very easy for me to get in, into the musical thing of that. And I started working on a lot of cool dance stuff in the late 70s. Then the death of disco thing happened. I went back to um, DJing. And then the early 80s, I started getting calls from Polydor and Polygram to work on R&B artists like Stephanie Mills, Cameo, Barcase, etc. I got into that again. Everything was great. And I wanted to do something different. So I started to get the new wave shit. Because, again, I played that in my club. So it was every, very easy for me to adapt to that style of music. And it was that... Uh, Icicle Works, I believe, Promise You a Miracle by uh, Simple Minds. Yes. Another, oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. all-time favorite. Oh, my God. Now, when you, are you in the studio working with like Ian McNabb from High School Works and Jim Kerr from Simple Minds, or are you do are you working on their stuff by yourself afterwards? I'm working on it because the company hires you to do the remix, so those artists were not in the studio when I was doing it. Okay, okay. 
Yeah, Promise You a Miracle. That's another classic. Okay, I got to ask you about what I think is one of the most underrated covers of all time, and that's Aretha Franklin's version of Jumping Jack Flash. was made for that movie it's long forgotten no one cares about that song but i do what did you have to do with that song i did additional production and mixing i was doing a lot of work with arison with clyde davis i worked with him with whitney houston uh aretha franklin i did who's zooming who mm-hmm. another night i did a lot of songs with aretha and i even uh clive talked me into working with the grateful dead which i'm not a fan but Right. Not my type of music, but he forced me into working with them. And uh, I'll tell you the experience in the studio, which actually was kind of cool. Okay. So I got another song called uh, Jump Jack Flash with Keith and Aretha. And Clive knew I worked with the Stones before, so he figured that'd be a great marriage. So I took the song. I wound up doing a lot of additional production and working on a song. Now, the funny thing is, I probably had about three or four number one hits with Aretha. And I have yet to meet her because she doesn't like to fly. Oh, <laughs> And I worked on the song um, with her and George Michael, which won a Grammy. Yep, I knew you were waiting. Right. Kind of an interesting thing. I finally get to meet Aretha at one of Clive Davis's pre-Grammy parties. 
Mm-hmm. And Aretha, she's he's walking in with Aretha. Aretha's wearing this white mink stole. <laughs> and Clive introduces me to Aretha for the first time. She looked at me, and I felt the expression of mine was, I can't believe Thompson is white. Look. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I know it's priceless. You've I probably mean, gotten that a couple of times in your career. Well, the reason being, I mean, I've worked on hip-hop from sure. public hip Wu-Tang. And, and it was kind of interesting because I worked very closely with Rizzo from Wu-Tang. And we developed a great relationship together. I remember working on a uh, his album while he had to go on Hot 97 and do a radio interview. And I will never forget this thing he said on the radio. It was absolutely hysterical. Yeah, I was listening to it in the studio. He goes, yo, i just like to say what up to my nigga Steve Thompson, the only motherfucker to ever get point on my music. <laughs> <laughs> I have this odd tape. It was hysterical. It's the best. Absolutely hysterical. I mean, it was priceless. I mean, you know, it, you know, we go back to the word. And again, I grew up in a, in a household where we, racism was never even an issue. Good. Thank God I had parents that says, we don't care who you bring over. We don't care what color, race, or name, as, as long as they're good people. Mm-hmm. And that's how I grew up. So to me, to even see racism bothers me. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in, in Queens, New York, where I was hanging out with the Black Panthers in high school. Oh, okay, wow. they turned me on to Miles Davis, Bitches Brew Run on the corner. Mm-hmm. I grew up with James Brown, Lynn Collins. I mean, you name it, Motown, everything like that. So, and, and you know, and I really feel the pain of how can people judge a person on the skin color? To me, it makes no sense. I mean, yeah. I could go out in, in the beach and I would probably be darker than most African-Americans would be after a summer in the beach. Yeah, yeah. But for people to judge people on skin color has no basis. And, and the N-word to me, to me personally, mm-hmm. is twofold. First of all, it's not about a color of a person. And number two, you know, when I'm in the hip-hop community, the N-word is actually a, a word of respect, how you use it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like your brother. Right. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I don't make yes. the rules here. Sure. But, you know, that's how we treated that. And I would obviously never use the word because I would never, right. never, <laughs> ever want to um, uh, 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 hurt anybody's feelings. Like when if somebody called me a cracker, I mean, that probably that's wouldn't bother me. You know, I don't right. care. Right. But, yeah. you know. You know, from what what they had to go through and the pain they go through, even to this day, yeah. just gets me nuts. I, I just something I'll never understand and never approve of. But yeah. okay, good to know. Yeah. Um, okay, so we, in talking about uh, Grammys, you won a Grammy with the with the Cutting Crew, and I've right. had Nick Van Eed on here. I love them. I love that first album. The rest of their stuff gets kind of weirder and weirder. It's harder to digest. But that first album broadcast is just a perfect album, start to finish. How, what did you do with them? I produced that. Uh, actually, we produced that song, Been in Love Before. Catch my breath. Close my eyes. Don't believe a word. she said. Something wrong inside 
hit and they didn't like what we did what was the hit um, i just died in your arms tonight yeah they didn't like what i did with it so they wound up redoing it i don't oh, know why interesting. huh okay yeah, I, I don't know why but uh they were a typical english uh snooty band oh really who, who, who felt their shit didn't stink and um you know whatever okay but i really loved his voice i loved the timbre of his voice it's very soothing and yeah, you know, they wound up using our Bin Laden. I know they tried to reproduce Bin Laden before, but I don't think they could capture what we did. So, hey, okay. it happens, you know? Yeah, so that's the you did the version that's on the final, on the album that I own? Correct. Okay, yeah. cool. Uh, you know, one thing that we try to touch on sensitively on the podcast is the money side of things. Are you getting a point for or something for all of these things you're working on? Or is this a case-by-case case basis, someone pays you to remix something and that's the end of your job? No, we get royalties on everything. You do? You know, okay. We we set the bar back in the day. You know, I had great management, so they, they took care of us. And Good. We we get royalties on everything. The one thing about Arista Records, I am going to audit their asses because <laughs> I can't believe, you know, if you saw my Whitney Houston check, which the song I worked on, I Want to Dance with Somebody Else, uh, I Want to Dance, mm-hmm. was probably voted the number one pop song of all time and if you saw the royalty checks uh, it doesn't make sense doesn't add up wow. alright gang we'll, be, we'll get back to Steve in a minute I want to take care of some business last week's episode with Alex Call and Tommy Two-Tone kind of blew up a little bit for us which is so weird to me I have to admit Yan and I we're, we put out episodes sometimes and we're sure they're going to be huge you know, it's the right guest at the right time telling an amazing story that no one's ever heard before. This thing's going to blow up, and it doesn't. And then we put out ones like Alex and Tommy, which I stand by that. I think it's a perfectly good episode. I didn't think it was revolutionary or anything. And people come out of the woodwork loving that. It's I just never know what you guys are going to like. Honestly, I never know what's going to work out. I just... I get ideas for people I think might have interesting stories. I interview them. Sometimes I'm right. Sometimes I'm wrong. In fact, uh, later this month, we have a couple I think I may have been wrong on. But anyway, um, yeah, I just never know. But thanks, everyone, for supporting us. It's just, uh, you guys are nuts. I, I can't, I never know. All right, some shares this week. Jay Sabluski, as always, good old Jay. Jason Simons, Harry Sapotter, hope I'm saying that right. Save Rock and Metal. Now, i got to come back to that one in a minute. Joe Royland of Sit and Spin. Thank you, Joe, as always. The Grown Up Rock Podcast. Alex Call himself shared it. I did not see Tommy Two-Tone share it, though. Um, I don't know. He, he seemed a little unhinged in that episode. Maybe he knew that and didn't want to share. I don't have any idea. Anyway, Anthony Porter. Uh, thank you, Anthony. I, I think I forget to mention him sometimes. He's in a band called Three Chord Money. And he shares almost every episode, and I think I may have forgotten to mention him before. Thank you, Anthony. Rob Disner. Rob is going to, his name's going to come up again here in a minute. And then the podfather, Ken Mills. So save rock and metal. Um, they, I don't even know who they are. Sometimes I know who some of these people are, or, you know, I interact with them a lot since they found the podcast. I don't know who save rock and metal is, but they threw out this uh, tweet this week. 
If you have not listened to the Hustle Pod, or it was a tweet, so it was at the Hustle Pod, then you have been missing out. Simply one of the best music slash rock podcasts on the planet right now. The Alex Call Tommy Two-Tone episode is a must-listen. I, I could not believe that. I don't even know those people. And see, again, I think that I think Alex and Tommy is great, but I think there's 50 other ones that are better. And it, it's just... Cra- I am so humbled that any of you listen, that any of you like it, that you say nice things. Uh, it just blows me away. Thank you all so much. Now, let's <laughs> keep this going. Let's read some reviews. Going back to Rob Disner. He wrote us a very nice review on Facebook. I'm just constantly amazed that John can track down all these people and get them to pour their hearts out about their music and their lives. Never miss an episode. Enjoy John's enthusiastic style and his ability to just get out of the way and let the artists tell their own story. Thank you, Rob. Uh, his name's going to come up one more time. Another new ep- a new uh, review this week from Rocket Ride 69. Five stars. This is on iTunes. This, this podcast is incredible. I am hooked. John, how do you do it? <laughs> it's actually easier than you would think. Such great interviews with artists that can't be easy to find. If you have never heard this podcast, give episode 23, Walter Egan, 88, Fee Waybill, 120, John Parr, or 134, Alex Call, a try. John, keep up the great work. Your podcast is so unique and is an absolute pleasure to hear every week. Thanks, Sonny Poo- Oh, Sonny Pooney of the Grown Up Rock Podcast. Okay. Thank you, Sonny. That's... Man, see, again, thank you guys for saying these really nice things. Okay, and then I got one more here from Dorian Gray. Not exactly sure who Dorian Gray is. I probably would know if he told me. Uh, what a podcast. Five stars. Such fascinating and interesting interviews. This is definitely worth your listening time to find out the real journeys of these artists. Keep up the great work, John. Thank you, Dorian Gray. Um, by the way, I have not been mailed the Hired Gun DVDs yet. I um, don't know. We did announce the winners, but they haven't gone out yet because they haven't been sent to me. I emailed them again the other day. I did not hear back. I hope I'm not getting screwed on this. Also, Alex Call is going to be mailing me some CDs of his last album, Call of the Wild. We're going to do a giveaway for those as well. I'll give you more information on Facebook on those as soon as it becomes available. Um, as I've mentioned before, please go to Amazon if you want to buy a Hustle t-shirt, uh, black and gray. They're $19.99. They come in all shapes and sizes. You just, I've posted the link on Facebook before. I'll do it again. But if you just go into the, into Amazon and you type in the Hustle podcast shirt or merch or whatever, it's right there. So thanks to everyone. Again, I get sent pictures or texts or whatever, bought your shirt and they send me a picture. Uh, it's. Humbling is just the word that keeps coming to mind. I can't, I can't believe it. But thanks everybody who supports us. I really, really appreciate that. All right, I want to throw out some uh, requests I've been getting lately. Andy Solom uh, requested Dave Bickler of Survivor, the original singer of Survivor. I've reached out to Dave. We're Facebook friends. I've not heard back. Uh, I heard Dave on another podcast. I think this is going back a while. It's the Beats and Eats podcast. Really good interview. Dave is not... 
I mean, Dave, there's a story there. You know, you're in the band, you have health issues, you get kicked out, you come back, you get kicked out again, or you quit, or maybe you were fired or whatever. There's a story there. And I, I, it seemed to me that Dave was not very forthcoming. Of course, that was an older interview, but uh, with all the details. So maybe it's going to be more difficult than I think it is to get that story out of him. But I am going to try and keep tracking down Dave Bickler. Marco Acaro, I hope I'm saying that right, Marco, requested Spear of Destiny. That's a great, great idea. I should have thought of them. So I will try and find Spear of Destiny and see what I can come up with. Rob Disner, again, um, Adrian Ballou. Now, I have tried to do, find Adrian Ballou. I, I mean, I, I know where he is. I've been trying to get a hold of Adrian Ballou. Back a year and a half ago or so when we did Carlos Alomar and Robin Clark, I was trying to put together kind of a string of Bowie-focused uh, episodes at the time. And so I reached out to Adrian, Niall Rogers, Earl Slick, I think Mike Garson, and uh, I didn't hear back from any of those. So that's the deal. Um, I might give this one a little bit of time because I have a feeling if Adrian were to come on now, he'd want to talk about that Gizmodrome album, which I'm not really that interested in talking about. So um, I might wait a little bit and try him again. Rob also requested Graham Maybe, who's the bass player for Joe Jackson. Anyone who listens regularly may know that I love Joe Jackson. Graham is on my list as well. I have not sought him out yet, but I will. Uh, Ben Dobson asked for men without hats. I have reached out to Ivan a couple of times. We're Facebook friends as well. I have not heard back. I will try him again as well. Brian Morris, uh, threw out a couple of really good names. Topper Heaton, former drummer of the clash, who was also on my list and Eddie McDonald, who was a member of the alarm. Now, let me fill you in. Eddie, I have, he's now a photographer. I've emailed him a couple of times and not heard back, which really surprises me because I think if you're now a photographer, wouldn't you want to talk about that? I, so, I mean, yeah, we're going to talk about the alarm, but this gives you a chance to, you know, tell us what you're up to now. And if you're up to something that good and cool, then let's talk about it. But I have never heard back from Eddie McDonald. And then Topper Heaton. Okay. Topper seems really hard to find. I have been trying to locate Topper for a while. Um, what I did actually recently, you guys may remember earlier this year, I had Dennis Seaton on from Musical Youth. And I just, I took a, I, I thought it might be a long shot, but maybe Dennis knows Topper or knows people who knows Topper since, you know, they were kind of in that dub reggae thing and the clash were into that for a while around the same time. Anyway, I emailed Dennis. Dennis did not know how to reach him, but Dennis suggested that I get, try and get in touch with Don Letts. If you don't know who Don Letts is, that guy, I mean, I would love to talk to Don Letts. So I'm hoping to get Don on and have Don point me to where Topper might be, maybe. Don was a member of Big Audio Dynamite. He's a movie producer. He's a record producer. He is a man of many colors, many talents. I'm hoping, so I've emailed him a couple of times too and never heard back. So I don't know. That's uh, that's where we're at with all of those right now. Hopefully there's some good things down the pike. We'll see. I'll just keep trying on some of these. I think that's pretty much it. It's actually, uh, I had a, in, in a 24-hour period this past week, four dream guests came back to me and said they would be on the show. Four. And these are people I've been, I have been dying to talk to for two and a half, almost three years now. You guys are going to love this. And by the time you've heard this episode, if you listen to it on the day it comes out, I will have most likely, hopefully interviewed two 
Rock and Roll Hall of Famers. So there is a lot of really good stuff in the works. By around mid-January, not that I mean they're all good, but by about mid-January, for the next couple of months after that, we're going to go on kind of a, a win streak there. I think you guys are going to like it. Anyway, let's get back to Steve. There's so much corruption. Ever since I started this thing two and a half years ago, with the intent of talking to some of the don't take this the wrong way, but some of the littler guys or the behind the scenes guys, the people who did made really good music that we all know, but we don't know much about them. Um, you find out there's so much political garbage going on behind the scenes and people aren't getting paid what they deserve. And it's just not fair. Well, it, it, you know, the, the thing with the, the what I noticed about the music industry is everybody will be first to say, yeah, I was responsible for that success when they probably weren't. Yeah. And um, obviously the corruption, I think the demise of the music industry was when they got rid of music people and put lawyers and accountants in to do everything. Yeah. I mean, you know, what, what the world needs to understand that music is like breathing. Mm -hmm. It soothes the soul. And I don't want to get um, religious here, but it really bothers me that, and this, I think this happens in most businesses where you get rid of the creative aspect of a business and you lose that business, and you yeah. can honestly see, you know, music to me, it, it, more people listen to music today than ever before, but now they're able to get it for free. And that's a shame because, you know, we, we spend, and again, I'm not trying to sound spoiled or anything, but we spend an enormous amount of hours creating this to create something special for somebody. Yeah. And having somebody come over your house and say, okay, I want you to rebuild my porch deck here. Mm -hmm. And then people said, well, you want to get paid? Are you kidding? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it doesn't make sense and it's not fair. And no other industry would deal with this. If you could suddenly get food for free, there wouldn't be restaurants anymore. You know, So it's just not, it's not fair that you guys get screwed this way. Well, I mean, the problem is the internet is, is a plus and a negative. Yeah. The internet has killed a lot of businesses and that's a shame. And, you know, obviously it's great for information, but at the same time, I, I think the Internet has killed um, human emotion, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. interaction. Um, everybody's quick to have an opinion, but they wouldn't have that same opinion if they were meeting you face to face, you know? Absolutely. It's absolutely right. Uh, you had mentioned the Psychedelic Furs earlier. What did you do with them specifically? Another uh, band well, I love. You have to understand, Psychedelic Furs, to me, were the next Bowie. And I, I wanted to work with them so fucking bad. And I finally got an opportunity to work on Midnight to Midnight. And I became very close with Richard Butler. I mean, you come up to my apartment in New York. We play chess every day. I mean, really? I, I just absolutely, I could send you some pictures. Absolutely love them. And... Um, Heartbreak Beat was huge for them. I worked on I worked on the whole album. Did you work uh, on Heartbreak Beat? Because that's another uh, one of the greatest songs of all time. Yes, I did. I did. Oh addition. man, I love you.
Yeah, I did the Midnight to Midnight. Chris Kimsey produced the album, I believe it's Chris. Did a great job, and I enhanced a lot of the production and mixed the whole album. Yeah. Okay. Goodness. Yeah, Heartbreak Beat, that's it up there with Whisper to a Scream and from High School Works. is some of the greatest singles of the 80s, I think, for sure. Well, I mean, if, you, if you're talking about the 80s, you can't talk about the 80s without not talking about WLAR radio in, in New York um, with Dennis McMara, Donna Donna, Larry the Duck. I mean, that to me, I'm, are you familiar with that radio station? I've at heard all? of it. I grew up in Salt Lake City, so I was okay. far removed from anything cool. Well, WLAR was probably the biggest radio station in the world to... Uh, uh, promote New Wave, which all the furs, everything like that. They're responsible for bringing that in the mainstream. They were like mm. the the hot 100 of that. And they were very instrumental in breaking all these artists. And I had a very close relationship with them and uh, where they had actually go on air with Dennis in the morning. We did the morning show together. I'll never forget the first time um, uh I programmed a, a whole thing, and I start off with In Excess off the Shabu. Shabu what was that? Uh, the one thing off Sh- of Shabu Shaba, and then it ends with Don't Change. Yeah, Don't Change was okay. my favorite, my favorite song. That, that song was like Love one of them my them and that song. Yes. Yeah, and uh, we had a very close relationship. So I remember working with Talking Heads and all these bands, <clears> and I would give them first dibs on everything I did, and they actually made me. Producer of the year, uh, I still got the the trophy they gave me, mm. which was interesting because it was for psychedelic furs, and it was for Paul Simon too, mm. which is interesting. Yes. You know, yeah. which I, I don't know why. I mean, I worked on Graceland, a great album, but why that went with LAR, which was kind of interesting. Okay, what'd you do on Graceland? Because I just probably two I, nights ago watched one of those classic album programs on Access TV or whatever it is. What'd you do? I worked on the song uh, Diamonds on the Soles of Your Shoes and Boy in the Bubble. And the, the Warner Brothers called me up and says, you know, we need, want you to do some remixes to make this work in clubs. Mm. I, that's going to be hard to do. Yeah. People say she's crazy. She got diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Well, that's one way to lose these walking blues. Diamonds on the soles. She was physically forgotten, but then she slipped into my pocket with my car keys. She said, you're taking me for granted, because I please you, wearing these diamonds. And I could say, ooh, as if everybody knows what I'm talking about, as if everybody here Exactly what I was talking about. Talking about diamonds on the soles of the shoes. So I, I, I listened to the gist of the album and I absolutely love the singers that Paul got on them. I mean, they're just like the rhythm of them was amazing. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to get a percussion player that knew African rhythms and knew traditional rhythms. And I wound up hiring Bashiri Johnson, who mm. they call Bash. And he worked out amazing. And Paul came in the studio, listened to stuff, and he absolutely loved what we did on the songs. 
so much that he, he brought Bashiri on tour with him. Oh, really? I love stories like that. That's yeah. great. It was like with, uh, I worked with Susanna Hoffs on uh, uh, Stuck in the Middle with You is for a movie. Mm-hmm. I wanted to bring in Matthew Sweet. And um, I, I kind of conned Matthew. I said, Matthew, I just want you to play your electric sitar. He comes and does I said, okay, now can you sing backgrounds? And I got him to say he didn't really want to do it, but he wound up doing it. Song became great. And I found out later that him and Susanna went on tour together. I mean, how cool is that? They've put out three or four <laughs> albums together since you then. Can thank, you yeah. can thank me for that. You're the guy. I put them <laughs> together, great. yeah. I love Matthew Sweet too. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, he, I, I, I think Matthew's a, a great guy. You know. Yeah. Good. Okay. Now I want to. This is another uh, interesting personality, Scritty Politi. Uh, if there was the second person that I would most want to interview for this show would be Green Gartside, because I sure. just find him interesting. Uh, you worked on the Provision album, I believe, which is the one that came out after Perfect Way and Cupid and Psych '85. What was it? How'd you get brought in there? And what, how, what was it like working with Green? Did you work with him? Did no. You work with him not, directly? No, actually, it was, uh, I think I worked on some Boom, There She Was. Mm hmm.
knowing how technical the band was, I had to put my thinking cap on this. You know, they're very into very technical production. And I remember working on the song and we did crazy edits. I mean, there was like about five million edits on this one song just to make it really cool and technical in that way. And um, I never did get to work with the band, but the record company gave me the multi-track and I just did what I did. Okay, okay. Interesting. So you never interfaced with Green Guard side at all? No, not at all. Okay. Hmm. All right. Um, another uh, personality-driven act, the Fine Young Cannibals, mm-hmm. have one of the biggest albums in the world with Ron the Cooked, and then they completely disappear from view. Did you work right. with them personally? No. Again, it was the company said, would you want, uh, can you do a remix on this one song? I forgot what the name of the song was. I think uh, you did Good Thing. Yeah, it might have been good. I'm not sure. I'm going to look this up. Find it. Oh, Don't Look Back. That's the song you did with Fine Young Cannibals. Boingo, um, you, I believe, worked on their Boingo album, which I think was the last one that they did right. in the early 90s, which is very different from the rest of their stuff. That was, I've always thought Danny Elfman's sort of like Dark Knight of the Soul. I can't do this anymore. I'm indulging every dark fantasy I ever had. And that's, this is the album that illustrates that. And now I'm done. Did you work with Oingo Boingo at all personally? Yes, and I'll tell you a great story about that. We worked in L.A. with Danny, and his string arranger was Steve Bartek, I believe. Mm-hmm. And Danny was involved in movies, and he was getting he's getting to be the new John Williams of movies. <clears throat> and I, ha- I remember I talked him in the studio one night. I said, Danny, so what kind of royalties you get? And I said, no, they pay me just fees. I said, dude, you better start getting royalties. You should be getting points on this shit. So now, obviously, he does. Uh-huh. But... This was at the time when we experienced the Northridge earthquake mm. in L.A. <clears throat> this was a very dark time for me. So I was working on Danny's project. The earthquake happened. It totally freaked me out. I went to Danny, his manager, and my manager said, listen, <clears throat> I'll pay for this. Can we finish this up in New York? I want to get the hell out of L.A. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, of course, they said no. So I experienced 2,000 aftershocks in the whole week. I remember – calling up Slash, and he had about 50 snakes in his place, and they all got <laughs> loose. Oh, no. I called up another friend of mine who was in-ground pool, moved about two feet. Oh. And so it was a weird time. Yeah. But I love Danny, and I think his string arranger is absolutely fucking brilliant, Steve. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Who do I 
I wrote a movie, and I'd like to bring Steve in to uh, do the music with me. In fact, what I'm going to do is I wrote a movie called Souls. And it's going to be this this movie that's holy fucking shit wow when you see it. Mm-hmm. And everybody goes, well, what kind of music can you do for us? I want to do all new classical music. Mm. So basically, if you ever saw the movie Amadeus with Tom Hewlett, I'm going to be Tom Hewlett. Really? Where I'm going to go to Vienna, wear that shit, bring Bartek in. <laughs> And just go off for five years writing the music. <laughs> that, that's, my, that's on my bucket list. That is great. I would love to see that. Yeah, I, I know. Ho- I hope that happens. Oh, it will happen. Trust me. Go, I, I have a feeling it will. Um, okay, a couple of... Um, I, I hit the bigger ones. Now, here's some little strange ones. Kajagugu, Turn Your Back on Me. I love I love Kajagugu. And I actually and this is I this is not meant as a dig to Lamal. I think they got better after Lamal left. Not because right. Lamal hold held them back, but because their song and their style their style got different and better, a little funkier. Uh sure. Nick Beggs is a great bass player. What did you do on Turn Your Back on Me? I did additional production and mixing. I'm trying to think 
I'm trying to remember if Lamal was in the studio. He might have been. I'm not 100% sure. Huh. Because he was, he was out of the band by then, but was he still hanging around? Oh, that's a good question, because I think I might have worked on some of the solo stuff. I'm not sure. Okay. I mean, you probably know better than I do at this point. Uh, <coughs> uh, Google, I believe, was on EMI, too. I think I was doing a lot of work for EMI, so they would bring all those type of bands to me at the time. Okay. Okay. Nothing specific about them or personalities or anything like that? Nothing that, that, that um, I, I could think of. Okay. No, okay. Not really. That's all right. Um, now, I want to <laughs> ask you about Anderson, Brookford, Wakeman, and Howe, brother of mine. In the big dream, we are heroes, we are dreamers. remember that song very well um i uh i love i'm i'm uh, i'm totally blaspheming here i like yes a lot but i like the 80s version of yes when they got popular because sure. that's what i grew up on and all, any yes fan would just burn me at the stake for saying that so i was especially keyed into anything else they were doing at the time like that offshoot that anderson Bruford wakeman and how uh, what did you do on that how did you get brought on brought in Oh, that was a great thing. Actually, I was brought in to mix the album with my partner, Michael Barbiero, and John Anderson. We worked up in Bearsville Studios in upstate New York, and John came in, which is great because, you know, and, you know, John and myself, we became great friends oh, from that session. And what I felt was kind of interesting and weird is that John and I guess Rick Wakeman, they, I think they designed all these tracks musically. And then they would bring Bill Buford after all the drums were programmed, <clears throat> say, okay, Bill, play your personality on this track. Now, everything was done. I mean, with a guy like Bill Buford, I don't know if I would have taken that approach. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, we went in the studio, and John is like an... Um, a savant and, and kind of like a hippie. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of interesting. We actually went golfing in the morning because when I, when I, up in Bears, Alice, I worked on Alice Cooper on the Trash album and mm -hmm. 
<clears throat> he would take me golfing every every day, and so I became a golf junkie. Of course, he did. Are you still a golf junkie as much as he is? Yeah, yeah, oh, not as much as if I love it. But so I took John golfing with me one morning, and John's wearing these hippie clothes, and it's a beautiful day, and he's got the club nonchalantly. Oh, Steve, the birds and the bees, how beautiful this and that, right? He gets up, he hits the ball 275 straight up the fairway like nothing's going. Oh, no way. I, it was so incredible. I mean, this guy's got an aura, which is amazing. So we had a great time in the studio, but we did fight hmm. because I wanted to bring Steve Tao's guitars more in the forefront of the songs, and John said no. And I fall with them. At the end of the day, nobody's around, so I had to do that. And then I found that Steve Howe later hated what I did with his guitars. And it wasn't John. Yeah. I, it's like a Metallica thing. I wasn't responsible for the lack of bass, okay? Yeah, yeah. You know, John was there. I won. I love Steve Howe. I think the guy's an amazing guitar player. And, you know, John made me kind of bury them. I think he kind of favored more of the keys and everything, you know? Yeah. Did they do that offsuit? I mean, was that offshoot uh, project of theirs? Was it a was it a byproduct of there being drama in the Yes camp? And so they, do you know why they did that thing? It was just a one off. Well, the thing was again, Clive Davis, Arista Music. I mean, this oh. probably the same situation when Clive called me up one day, Steve. I am very excited. I signed the most amazing rock band. I want you to work with that. It's a great Clive. Who is it? Grateful Dead. Oh. I, I said, no, no, Claude, pass. <laughs> he says, why? He says, this is not my type of music. Come on, Steve, you'll be fine. I said, Claude, I really don't like this shit. Okay, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. Clive talked me into working with the dead. I said, okay, I'm in Power Station. And we're there just to mix a song called Throwing Stones. Um, and there were my partner. Great song. I didn't know you did that. I like that song. Yeah, so I'm in with my partner, Mike Barbier. We're putting up the song and everything like that. And Garcia and Bob Weir walk in. We introduce ourselves. And I think Barbier goes to Garcia. So what do you think of your vocal sound? So Jerry goes, uh, that's not me. That's Bob. So I think Barbier says, well, I guess you can see what kind of deadheads we really are. <laughs> and after that moment, they absolutely loved us. Because oh, good. first person that could give a fuck who they are. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And and it was the most pleasant experience after that. I'm smoking a joint with Jerry. Yeah. He's talking about everything. We became very close. 
And he told me the story when they were in the Playboy Mansion. There was a, a show called Playboy After Dark. Yep. You definitely did on TV. Yep. And they performed one night. And they told me they put LSD in the punch bowl and everybody was tripping. <laughs> I said, Jerry, with all due respect, if you were to pull that shit on me, I'd probably have to kill you. you know? <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, nice. Did you ever I'm, become a Grateful Dead fan? No. Yeah, no, me neither. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, um, it's kind of interesting because I remember in the 80s, I mean, I'm doing all these hard rock bands. My favorite band was The Cure. Okay. Oh, yeah. There you go. In the 90s, I loved Pulp. I loved uh, uh, Stone Roses. I mean, yeah. I love that whole vibe of music. Lightning Seeds. I mean, I can yes. go a little on and everything like that. I love that. I've always been a big fan of English music from Me to too. this day. Me too. And, yeah. and you know, um, I probably, I, I wanted to work with Cure in the most obscene way, but I said to myself, you know what? I have a feeling if I work with them, I'm not going to like them anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> certain bands you just want to sit back and enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, and that's basically been my thing, you know? Okay. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I just interviewed Lowell Tolhurst, their original drummer, uh, who wrote a book um, recently. And I didn't think the book was that revelatory. It was interesting. You, they're so enigmatic. You kind of want to understand them better. And I didn't feel like I came away understanding them any better. Um, but I love them too. Okay. Another one for you is Jesus Jones. Real, real, real. Mike Edwards on here from that band. Do you remember anything about that? Uh, it's kind of like a one-off. Was uh, it? Okay. I think I kind of made it more funky and housey and garagey, I think, from what I remember. Okay. I think I, I, think I added a bass line. It was pretty cool. Okay, probably. Um, what about Simply Red? Did you work oh, with... Yeah, yeah, I worked on Money's Too Tight to mention and Come to My Aid. Brother, I'd like to help you, but I'm unable to. So I call him up. 
and I'll never forget this experience. Um, I worked on the two songs, and then I saw a review on my version. Uh, uh, Money's Too Tight. It says, we hate the fucking album, but this remix of Money's Too Tight is the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, <wait>, really? <laughs> yeah. I, 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 thought, I, I thought that was, like, amazing, you know? Cool. Did you and, get to know them at all? Mick Hucknell, talk about personalities. He seems like a big one, too. Um, no, I don't think I've ever met them, but I mean, okay. I know they like the work I did with them. Good. Okay. Um, what about uh, Nelson Mandela by The Specials? And Elvis Costello, special AKA. Yes. I was that. I was actually very honored to work on that because, again, I'm always into uh, 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 civil rights and everything like that. I've always mm -hmm. been in those movements, and to get a chance to even do a song about Nelson Mandela because of the tragedy that. Uh, I mean, uh, we can go back to uh, Little Stephen. Uh, with Sun City and everything like that, and I was just like appalled. But to work on a song like that, I was felt very honored and blessed to be able to work on that. Good, yeah, yeah. That's a special song, especially. I mean, that it was written and performed and recorded before Mandela was released, and so right. when he came right. out, it had a new life, and then when he died, it had another new life, and now it's sort of an anthem, you know? Yeah. Good. Okay. I think I heard you say on the double stop that you sort of feel like the future, the next wave of music is going to be merging EDM with hard rock. And um, is that sort of where your head is at? I mean, you've been known for having these very special ears for 40 years now. Is that where you see things going? It has to. I mean, you know, it, um, again, I feel strong about this. I mean, when I did Guns N' Roses in the 80s, I felt that's what rock needed to be in its place. When I did Soundgarden in the early 90s, I felt that that's where rock needed to be. When I did Korn in the late 90s, I felt that's where it needed to be. And there's been no movement on rock for so many years. Everybody's so fucking retro. Yeah. And my, my feeling is, again, I grew up on dance music. I was a club DJ. And I always wanted to be able to marry the best elements of EDM with good rock and something exciting. I, I think it's important. I think kids need their own music. And... The only problem I've had with EDM music is a lack of great songs. Mm -hmm. My thing is to educate people and 
to give them something fresh and different. I mean, I have never lived in the past, and you know, I, I praise the Lord that I was able to work with all the artists I have, but what I've done in the past, the past has nothing to do with what I do now and in the future. It is totally irrelevant for me, and you know, I just like being groundbreaking. I like uh, starting a trend, not following one, you know, yeah. so it's been my MO. Well, there's like 10 or 15 more I could ask you about, but I'll, you've been very gracious with your time. I do want to cut it. I want to end it with a couple of questions that I ask everybody. Number sure. one, I want to know what your biggest regret might be. And when I say that, it's a decision that you made, not just something, not a, something that a label did to screw you. But if there was something you did that altered your career in some way that was irretrievable, uh, you you're you sound like you're doing fine, so maybe there isn't one. And then secondly, I just want to know what your tastiest, greatest memory is. And you you're full of stories, and I have a feeling you have some that I didn't even ask you to remember. But if you could think of one or two of those, those are the things I want to hear. Well, that'll come out of my book and movie, but um, oh, good, okay. But um, there was a couple of things that mm -hmm. I should have stood my ground that I didn't. I listen to other people in my camp, which I'm kind of pissed off at because I'm a headstrong person. Normally, I make the, the, the right decisions. Mm -hmm. Number one was passing on producing Guns N' Roses mm -hmm. because we were burnt. Number two, walking away from Ozzy um, uh, because they were just fuck-ups. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to stay with it, but my partner didn't, so I was left holding the bag. And number three passing on Jane's addiction, mm -hmm. which my partner was worried that he had a heroin habit. Mm -hmm. And I said, we can make it work because, you know, I work with the butthole surfers later when Gibby was 30 days sober and I got him in the studio and, uh, I wasn't worried about this after my partnership with Michael. And, and um, we wound up making the alternative record of the year and, uh, uh, on the butthole surfers. So yeah. I think cool. Good. Marky got with Sharon, and Sharon got Sharia. She was sharing Sharon's outlook on the topic of disease. Mikey had a facial scar, and Bobby was a racist. They were all in love with dying. They were doing it in Texas. Tommy played piano like a kid out in the rain. And then he lost his leg in Dallas. He was dancing with the train. They were all in love with dying. They were drinking from a fountain that was pouring like an avalanche coming down the mountain. I don't mind the sun sometimes. The images it shows. You on my lips and smell you in my clothes Cinnamon and sugary and softly spoken lies You never know just how to look through other people's eyes you personally ever have much of a drug problem? Never. Oh, no. Okay. No, I, I grew up uh, early in life where somebody gave me acid when I was 16, freaked the shit out of me, mm. and, and scared the hell out of me. <laughs> and I'm a control freak, so that would never happen to me. Okay. And uh, I wound up becoming a drug counselor in the studios. Good for uh, you. But, you know, I always liked a little weed, mm -hmm. and I'm not a drinker except I like a glass of red wine and a fine meal. Yeah. And so, a fine interview. I can see you. I saw you drinking it while we've been talking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm actually I'm getting ready to cook dinner for my wife. Cool. And how about that? Family, uh, kids, married? 
Well, I've been with Joanne since 1982. Love my life. Good for you. We um, decided not to have kids for the only reason that I'm old school Italian. I'm an Italian and Norwegian. And I'm old school. If I'm going to have children, I have to be there for them. And obviously with my job, I just couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want Joanne to have to bring up kids. We decided reluctantly not to have them. Do I regret it? Yeah, Mm -hmm. I do. But at the same time, um, I think it's important that seeing what's going on today, the broken homes kids are growing up with and the lack of direction, I think it's a sad state of affairs. I mean, I was very fortunate to grow up with a family that gave a shit. And if I get out of line, they would take care of that immediately. And you need. And, you know, that's just my own feeling. Okay. Um, I cut you off. What are your best stories? Your best memories? In music? Whatever, when you it, relating to your career, maybe it's meeting Bowie or The Cure or Aretha or whatever, you know. Well, I'll give you a story. In uh, early seventies, there's a club called Club Eighty Two in New York. It was like a glam transvestite club. Hmm. And one night, I met Bowie, Lennon, and Jagger. They were in the same club, and I'm wearing my seven-inch platform shoes with glitter on my face. And to say that I actually worked with all three of them is beyond belief. Yeah. I mean, uh, working. I worked on John Lennon's uh, Milk and Honey album, unfortunately, after he passed on. But I worked closely with Yoko on that. And obviously working with the Stones. Mm-hmm. And, and I actually turned down work with Paul McCartney, which mm-hmm. I, 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 I don't regret because <laughs> I didn't like the music and didn't think it was worthy of his stature. Mm. Um, and obviously Bowie, uh, again, the reason why I do music today is Bowie is my main influence. I mean, nothing more than that. Um, I, I'm just very fortunate to have worked with a, a ton of great artists, people and, and people around me to make my job easier because nothing gives me more pleasure than creating music. And hopefully, and I know this sounds cliche, but this is coming from my heart. If I could put a smile on someone's face mm-hmm. when they hear something I worked on, that to me is well worth it. I mean, it was kind of interesting. I remember when we did Guns N' Roses and I went to a football game with 80,000 people and the kickoff was Welcome to the Jungle. I got goosebumps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and another time I, I got goosebumps is uh, when I worked with Butthole Surfers, we did a song called Pepper, which became the number yep. one alternative song of the year. And they're on David Letterman. And, and the funny thing was, to me, it was great pleasure to hear David Letterman go, and here's the butthole surf. <laughs> <I mean, laughs> no one thought that day would come. Um, no. let, let me ask you about one more song I meant to ask earlier. Let's Work by Mick Jagger. You had something to do with that one. I actually love that song. And that's another song that's kind of a punching bag. What did you do with that one?
Well, uh, that whole album was a punching bag. Obviously, him and Keith Richards had a falling out, so Mick wanted to do some solo stuff, and I worked with Mick, and um, um, you know, he came out with songs. I wound up doing additional production and mixing on the song. We worked very closely together, and I'll never forget his story. When I was working with Mick, we had two studios going, one where he was working with musicians in one room, and the other room where I was doing post-production and mixing, and he was working with Jeff Beck. I remember Jeff coming to the studio and says, Steve, Steve, Mick's driving me crazy. I said, what's the problem? I said, he's telling me what to play. I said, really? <laughs> telling you what to play? So I basically had a sit down with Mick. I said, Mick, let me ask you a question. You're hiring the best musicians in the world. Why would you tell them what to play? You might as well just get an ordinary studio musician. Mm -hmm. If I have Jeff Beck in my session and I said, hey, Jeff, you know what? Here is 16 bars. Put your personality into that, and it's going to be much better than whatever I think it's going to be. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember having a conversation like that, you know, and mm -hmm. I always feel it's important to let artists be artists. We could disagree, okay? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I want them to be able to express what they do best. Mm -hmm. In today's world, it's all about Pro Tools. It's all about auto-tune. It's all about perfection. Music is not meant to be perfect. Mm -hmm. Music is meant to have a human emotion involved. And I want to make sure the music I work on has that. That you hear vulnerabilities of singers. You hear a great track and this and that. You hear great lyrics and something that you can relate to. I mean, that's just me, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. You know, when you look at shows like American Idol and X Factor, I mean, sure, they got decent voices, but they're playing covers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm developing a TV show where it's going to be the opposite of that, where I want to develop a show. Uh, it's in development right now. Nice. Where, where it's all going to be about original talent. You're not playing covers. You're playing your own material and let people judge. That's great. I want to find the new Pink Floyds, the new Marvin Gaye's, the new Led Zeppelin's, the new Beatles, the new Stones, mm -hmm. the new Public Enemies. And we have to give them an avenue to be able to do that. And and the music industry has not been able to do that, and I want I want to make my mark and be able to do something like that. Good. Well, your heart's in the right place. And just speaking as someone, if you can't tell, you were talking earlier about putting smiles on people's faces. Not only did you do that for me, um, you're the soundtrack to my life. You know, this is the you worked on the music that means most to me, um, from Earth, Wind, and Fire to Icicle Works to Bowie to. Everyone in between, Simple Minds, Scritty Politi, all these people. So I love you a lot. Thank you, Steve, for talking to me. And I hope I didn't bore you by throwing all these names out, out there at you. I just wanted to hear your stories. Oh, like I said, I'm glad I still have the memory. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. It was great, man. And say hello to all your listeners, and hopefully they got something out of it. And uh, like I said, I'm still 16 years old, and I'm making music today, and I'm enjoying it. That's great. There you have it, Steve Thompson. That's one of those interviews that I enjoy. I hope you guys enjoy them too. Um, really, if you want, if you need to get the entire picture of Steve Thompson, you got to listen to the Double Stops episode and this one because that one goes into more of his biography and how he got started in the business. I didn't go there because I felt like that story was already out there and I didn't want to recreate it. And I was, there was so much info that I wanted to hear that I just went directly to that. 
So really and truly, if, uh, if it seems like this was just more of a greatest hits, that's why. I would go in and look at his episode from a few months ago at the Double Stop, hear his bio, hear the hard rock and heavy metal side of his career, and together you get the full Steve Thompson story. Again, I hope, I hope he liked me. I don't know for sure, but either way, this was my way of honoring him. Speaking of honoring him, uh, a song that I, there were so many things that I still wanted to ask him about that I didn't because I was afraid I was keeping him too long. One of them is I loved Steve Winwood in the 80s. And one of his songs, Freedom Overspill, this is a remix that Steve did back in the day. Um, I wanted to ask him about this. I didn't do it. I kind of chickened out, but we're going to listen to it here. So this is that remix. I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, next week, so I'll, I'll give you a teaser, but it won't do any good. You're probably not going to know who next week's guest is. He's pretty obscure. You guys know how I feel about soundtracks. He uh, he had a song on uh, in an iconic movie. I'm almost positive you've seen the movie probably multiple times, so you'll know the song. Uh, but you probably don't know who his name his name or who sang it or anything else about him. So uh, I, that's who we're going to hear from next week. It's a pretty obscure one. You guys know the business by now. You can find us on Facebook and like our page. Please do. Please go get a t-shirt if you like. $19.99. It's cheap. Um, you can also send me an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. And as always, huge thanks to Jan the Man Makevich. He had a ton of work to do in this one and he nailed it. Thank you, buddy. We will see you guys next week. Keep going.